We were looking at Colossians chapter 1, a very small section in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. If you need a Bible, slip your hand up and we'll get one to you. We want you to be there with us in Colossians 1. And uh, we're taking three weeks to look at that small chunk. Last week we talked about, uh, started it, talking about the deity of Christ, that he is God, that he is creator, that he is the great I am. He is over all things, over all creation, because he is indeed creator. All things are created by him, through him, and ultimately for him. And while we may assent to that theologically, I think increasingly what we're in danger of is a cult-like version of evangelical Christianity. And I say cult-like version because I'm not saying that... uh, that we have a real danger of cults in most of our churches, what I'm saying is we have a danger of being very much like those cults. I mean, why do most cults exist? I mean, what, what is the main difference? They sing a lot of our songs. They, they, read, they use the same Bible. Even the guy that says, I'm, I'm God. I'm Jesus, come again. He's using the same Bible that's sitting in your lap right now. What's the difference? Well, if we had to boil it all down to one primary difference, it'd be, who's Jesus Christ? And most of the time, cults, whether they turn into really large, quote-unquote, denominations or just something in a compound somewhere, their answer is going to be, he was, uh, most of the time, their answer is going to be something along the lines of how Jesus was a man. He was a good man. He was a powerful man. He was a miracle-working man, but he was man. They don't proclaim he's God. And so they demote Jesus to the best that any of us can be, but not God. And the result of that is a version of Christianity where man is central. Jesus now becomes the primary example of what you can be, of what you're supposed to do of the life that you're supposed to be able to live. See, he did it. He was a man tempted like any of us, right? And look what he was able to do. He kind of led the way for us to realize our own inherent potential. That's radically different than the doctrine that he did what he was able to do because he's God. And you needed God to wear humanity in order to do what none of us can do. You see how those messages are are diametrically opposed to one another. They're very different. But increasingly what we see in our own camp of evangelical theology, of Christianity, Protestant Christianity, is a version of Christianity that sounds like the cults. When you go to to Barnes & Noble and you go to the Christian book section, And you look at Christian books, it says Christian living. Look at how many of those titles appeal to the greatness of you. You're going to buy this book because this book is going to help you understand how great you are. And sure, there'll be a few verses in there. They'll throw a few verses in there. But look, why did God create the world? For you. Why did Jesus come and die? For you. Everything is for you. You're at the top. You're at the pinnacle. That's why you're going to buy this book. That's why you want to buy this book, because that's what you want to believe. We have this inherent desire, this intrinsic bent, this proclivity to want to put ourselves at the center of things. A Christian church that 
that pumps that, sure, they're going to fill the seats because that's what people want. People don't want a message that says, you're demoted, Christ is promoted. No, they want a message that says, let's demote Christ so that you can see that you are the ones that should be able to promote yourselves. Christ did it. Radically different. It's scary. When we listen to sermons, Christian sermons, where it's very little Jesus and a lot you. Why do we come to church? Do we come to church to hear an exposition of me? Of me, of how I am, my potential, what I'm able to do? How great I am? Or do we come to hear an exposition of who Christ is? Now, I'm not saying that a sermon should be about Jesus and nothing about us. What I'm saying is, who is preeminent in our theology and in our thinking? When you go to a book section and most of the titles say, you, us, people, and not so much Christ, preeminent. Supremacy of God. Snore, boring, doesn't sell. That's a problem. You turn on the radio and you hear messages that start off with a verse, a little chunk of a verse, and then they leave the Bible behind and just talk about illustrations and this Civil War guy was so awesome. Why don't we just be awesome like that guy? Let's just be awesome. That's a problem. When megachurches publish books on how started and why they're so mega and how your church should be mega like our church should be mega and they tell you the way we started our church was we said all the tradition of how we've done church before let's put that to the side and let's ask the community who don't like church don't want to come to church they left church a long time ago they don't read the bible they have no idea who christ is and let's ask them if you wanted to come to church what would you think church should be like Then they collect all the evidence, what all these non-Christians think church should be, and then they create church to appease those sentimentalities. And then they put it under the banner of seeker Christianity, seeker sensitivity. The problem is they're not seeking. The seeker is the person who comes and on his knees says, God, I'm at my wit's end. I have nothing. I can do nothing. I need help. That's a seeker. That's the person the Father is drawing. But the person that says, I'm in charge. You know, if the church would just start doing things my way, then yeah, I'll go to church. That's not a seeker. That's all of us before we met Christ. Selfish person whose life is lived for themselves. Some of you may remember this army uh, jingle when the commercials used to try to recruit people to the army. Be all that you can be in the army, right? Be what you can be. Look at this cool guy. He's like a G.I. Joe. You remember playing with G.I. Joes? You've watched the movies. You've seen Rambo. Don't you want to be Rambo? Don't you want to use guns and climb walls and be all that you can be? And you go, yeah. And you go to the recruitment center and you sign up and they're like, oh, yeah. You're going to be all you can be, buddy. Oh, it's going to be great. Oh, I've seen some action. Oh, it was so cool. They get on the bus, pull up to Fort whatever, and they get out of the bus. And how does the sergeant greet them? Hey, I'm glad you're here. You bring so much value to our platoon. 
No. They're going to cuss them out. You are nothing. You're a worm. You're a maggot. Right? Wait a minute. What happened to the commercial? Right after G.I. Joe was over, I saw the commercial, and it said, be all you can be, and you're telling me I'm nothing. You're telling me I'm dirt, and you're using really naughty words. It makes me feel really bad. You're stripping me down. So what's happening there? They want you to be all you can be, but they realize you can't be all you can be if all you're concerned about is being all you can be. If you're still number one, you can't be in the army. You're going to get us killed. If all you care about is not, you not getting shot, if all you care about is your comfort, if all you care about is let everyone else do push-ups, I'm just kind of tired this morning, then you can't be here. So they strip you down, and maybe they don't do it in the most pleasant of ways, but they strip you down of your number one problem, which is yourself is what you worship. Well, what Paul's trying to do in the book of Colossians, he gets the practical stuff, but he doesn't want to get to the practical stuff. He gets the stuff about you and me and what our lives should look like. But before he gets there, he wants to strip us down of this of this. Uh, bent that we have that we're in the driver's seat it's me it's me it's about me come on Paul what do you got no he's going to give us a chapter on who Christ is and that Christ is number you can't be all you're supposed to be unless you understand that Christ is preeminent over all things he is God he is number one and he will not take competition with anything else or anyone else including yourself Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. New Testament, towards the end, right after Philippians. Not one of Paul's longest letters, but certainly packed with rich theology for life, for living. So we'll read 15 to 20, which many have called the Christ hymn. In other words, some think Paul didn't necessarily write it, but he's taking a piece of literature that they already know. Like if I were to quote you a song right now, and we all agree that that song is true, and he's putting it in here in this letter. It's a doctrinal statement of who Christ is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the body, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Last week we looked at verses 15 through 17, and today I just want to camp out on 18. Maybe we'll touch on 19 a little bit. In verses 17, uh, 15 through 17, He establishes that He's created all things. The smallest molecule, the, 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 the most complex you think of at the most molecular level to the grandest, biggest, mind-blowing expanse of the universe that you could think of. And everything in between, Christ created it for Himself. 
He is before all things, and he is over all things. In him all things hold together. But then what we see here in verse 18 is that reign, that supremacy, has a real specific focus. There's a, there's a, a, um, a concentrated emphasis of that big reign, such that he reigns over this one thing in a different way than he reigns over everything else. He reigns over everything, but there's one thing in particular that he's particularly the supreme leader of. Look at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. The church are God's gathered people. Uh, There's a local church, this gathering right here, that's a church. But then there's church everywhere, Christians everywhere that that are gathered in Christ's name. They're Christ's body and Christ is the head you understand the metaphor a hand is important but it doesn't tell the body what to do this is the control center right this is this is the center that tells the body what to do it directs everything else in the body and if it doesn't you have some problem there's something happening that's not right But the head is the control center of the body. In other words, yes, he's king over everything. Yes, he's creator over all things, stars and the smallest grain of sand. He's the creator of all of that, all creatures, all living things, Christians, non-Christians alike. But specifically, he's the head of the church. The scope of his reign is especially on the church in a way that's not necessarily true of the rest of creation. Let me put it this way. Maybe this helps bring it down a little bit. When I'm out with my kids, and maybe there's some other kids with us that are from some other family or something like that. They're hanging out with us. And I catch my kid misbehaving. I tell one of them, please stop doing that. Maybe they say something like, and there's a universal experience, I think, with parents. They might say something like, well, he's doing it. Right? That, that, That other kid's doing it. Now, one of my back pocket lectures that I prepared, and I pull out, memorized, right? That's not my kid. Is that kid's last name O'Neill? You're an O'Neill. Here's how we do things. Now, should that kid do that? Yeah, that kid should do that. Is it still wrong of that kid to do that? Yeah, it's still wrong. But you report to me in a way that that kid doesn't. You reflect this family in a way that that kid doesn't. Is Christ ruler over everybody? Yep. But especially over you, your family. You're his body. And so what you do and how you do it reflects your uh, belongingness to this corporate entity, the church, which is Christ's body. He owns it. It's his. And we do things his way. We're very much unlike the world because they buck against his authority where we're submitting ourselves to his authority. And so Paul's bringing it like this cosmological level. He's created all things in the universe and then he's focusing all that power, that supremacy on the church. The church in Colossae. It's church in Itasca. It's us. And he is the head. He's the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 
I was reading one commentator that said the, the word beginning here, it's uh, one of the best ways we can use, uh, translate that in English is to think of the word founder. You know, he is the founder. He is the beginner. Uh, he's the director of everything. Why? Because he founded it. This is his job. This is his role. Everything belongs to him. What did he found? He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This reign, this supreme reigner over all things, died. But from that death, he became a firstborn of all who would follow him. He's talking about the resurrection. So Jesus Christ is the founder and director of Resurrection, Inc., you want, you, want to, you want in on this company? You want in? He's created this way for us to enjoy the resurrection. He's the firstborn because all those brothers and sisters in Christ that would follow enjoy the resurrection of Christ because he founded it. He invented it. He started it. So that resurrection power speaks to his authority over us and our responsibility toward him. Think of it this way. Somebody does you a small favor, you think to yourself, hey, I'll get you back sometime. Somebody does you, does you a really big favor, you feel a little bit more indebtedness to them, right? Like, wow, you really didn't have to do that. Is there anything I can do? Is there anything I can do to repay that? If somebody saves your life, if somebody does something that gets you out of the, the most dangerous peril that you can think of, you kind of feel like a life indebtedness toward them, right? You, you kind of feel like, man, even if this person is crabby or, or is kind of woke up on the wrong side of the bed one day, I'm going to put up with that in ways that I don't put up with it in other people because I owe this person so much, right? Well, Jesus got you out of death. That's pretty big. Eternal death, you pave the way out of that by founding this company. There's a resurrection company, right? That's pretty big. So Paul's talking about this allegiance that we owe him, not just because he created everything, but because even though he created us, we're far from him. He created a way for us to be with him by conquering death and being the firstborn. In other words, we can come alongside him, come behind him in this train of resurrection that is only secured by Christ. Now, here's the purpose. Why did he do that? Now, if this is written by your typical published Christian author guy that sells a million books of the first copy, and then he releases the second copy for teens, and the third copy for women, and then and on and on it goes. You typically would see something like he was the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be in relationship with you. Or that in everything, you might have what you need. But, but it doesn't say that. It says, the reason why he's the firstborn of the dead is not firstly to get you out of your jam. The reason why he's the firstborn of the dead is firstly so that he's preeminent. That's why. So that he's at the top. The resurrection is mainly 
for that reason. You remember recently, and the author of this song is great, and there's a lot of great songs that we, that we sing by the, by the folks that wrote this song. But this song is how Christ is above all things. He's above all powers. He's above all earthly things. He's, he's above everything. He came and he died and he rose again. Above all, right? But then the last line, he raised from the dead the thought of me above all. Thought of me above all? Thought of me, yes, but thought of me above all? That's, that's not what that says. What is the ultimate reason why Christ died? Because I'm so great? To make me great? No. To demonstrate his greatness over everything. That's why. Angels fell. They didn't get redeemed. It probably chapped Satan's hide a little bit that he created people a little bit lower than angels and then said, watch this. Now I'm going to make them better than you. What? I did that. I'm preeminent. I can take something that I made out of dirt and then even when it is evil and an enemy toward me, I can change them and make them a worshiper. I did that. It's not mainly about me. It's mainly about him. I get the benefit of it. That's great. And he does demonstrate his love to us in the cross. It's not that he doesn't love us and only loves himself. It's that he loves us enough to not make us number one in his life. He loves us appropriately, making him number one in our lives, which is different. I'm scared of the version of Christianity where we increasingly make God our genie. We rub the lamp. He gives us what we want. And if he doesn't give us what we want, you know what? Then I'll go to some other church or I'll stop reading the Bible. I was doing all this praying and then here's this disease you hit me with. I don't want to worship you anymore. That's because you're still at the center of yourself. But if Christ is preeminent and he's the center, we recognize it's not all about me. Whether things bad happen to me or good things happen to me, I have this promise of resurrection in Christ so that he can demonstrate his preeminence over my life. Not so that I can demonstrate my preeminence over his life. I love how all-encompassing it is. It squeezes you into a corner where there's really no escape, right? He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For what purpose? That in everything he might be preeminent. Not so that on Sunday mornings he's preeminent, or church-related things he's preeminent, or when it's Bible time it's preeminent, when you're watching a movie, is he preeminent? When you're arguing with your spouse, is he preeminent? When you're thinking about the future of your kids and how to push them toward a path, is Christ preeminent in that? Or is it this? He's preeminent in everything. There is no place, no corner, no section of your life in which Christ is not supposed to be preeminent. He's the head, you're a hand, you're a foot, you're a finger, you're an eye. But he's the head in all things, in everything. I want to show you how this verse kind of permeates into the rest of the book when he gets uh, more practical and he talks about more practical things. You see him reaching back toward this theological truth that he started the book with and it's because of that truth that this thing is practical in your life. And so we see that 
in chapter 3. Look at the first four verses and listen to how it kind of echoes what we just read. If then you've been raised with Christ, there's the resurrection promise, right? You're with the founder of Resurrection Inc. He's got that for you. It's guaranteed for you. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's his preeminence. There's his authority. So if you've been raised with him and he's authoritative, he's supreme, then seek things that are above. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's the deity again. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's resurrection again. So you see the same themes coming here, and he's saying, if this is true, then your life shouldn't be set on earthly things. Is it? How much do you cling to earthly things? We all have earthly things. He's not saying don't have earthly things. He's saying don't set your heart on those things. Have a heavenly mindset where that's more important to you. And then verse 5. Take a deep breath first and then read it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now here's one of our problems. When we think of idolatry, we think of idols. A little carved images that people bow down to. Oh, look at that idolatry. He's saying, do you covet anything? You don't have it. You wish you had it. And you wish you had it really bad. That's covetousness. You're a little bit disappointed in God that you don't have it. Health? Something that should belong to you? A type of family? Different set of parents? You wish you had your friend's parents. Why do you have these parents? You wish you had those kids. Why can't my kids be like that? You're stuck with these kids that behave like this. Do you covet that family? Idolatry. Anything that's before God is an idol. If God doesn't fully satisfy you, and God can only fully satisfy you if there's something else, something else that comes into life taken together with God, now you're satisfied. Well, then that other something else is your idol. God can't be 80% your satisfaction, and then you get 10, 10% satisfaction from something else, and five here and five there. God has to be your 100% satisfaction, otherwise you have idols in your life. And that's clear from the text, because he, that's why he says covetousness is idolatry. So anything you covet, you're, you're an idolater. So what is his injunction to us? Put it to death. He's talking to Christians here. You think, well, I gave my life to Christ. I put all that stuff to death. Now, I used to be an idolater, and now I'm Christian. He's recognizing the fact that we always have this pull. We always have this tug to go back to the old ways of displacing the preeminence of Christ with something else. It's not always petty things. You know, like the typical preacher, cars and bigger house. It might just be, you wish you didn't have this disease or that your dad didn't or you you wish your mom was still with you and she's not she was taken early and that's the thing you covet you covet more time with mom now who can't who can't associate with that whose heart doesn't bleed over that that's that's painful but it's still an earthly thing 
And we can grieve over it. Christ grieved over his friend's death, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Christ had place for grief, but he didn't place it number one. He didn't put it above all things. He didn't covet it. So verse 5, you can hear Paul's pastoral heart toward them. If verses 1 through 4 are true, if the hymn from chapter 1 is true, Christ is supreme, he's preeminent, and because of his resurrection, he's made a way for us to be with him, and him preeminent over us, well then verse 5 needs to be true in your life. And some of us go, man, I feel like I can't put it to death. Well, how's your Christology? How's your view of Christ? Sometimes we skip over the, oh, Christ, above all things, the cosmic powers, blah, blah, blah. Give me something, give me something. Number five, yes, that's practical. Put this to death in my life. Problem is you skipped over the power that makes chapter 3, verse 5, a reality in our lives. We have to go back to who Christ is. Is he king? Does he reign? It calls for radical allegiance. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 3. And whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, things you say, things you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I think we suffer oftentimes from a version of Christianity where we only live out that verse when we eat meals. Well, let's not eat. If you scold your kids like I do, put that spoon down. You know, we didn't pray yet. We need to eat this meal in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we're going to do that by saying a little prayer. That's how we're going to do that. But we're eating this meal to glorify God and to thank Him that this meal comes from Him. Without Him, we wouldn't have this meal. There would be no fields. There would be no crops. There would be no animals. That's a great thing to do. But this verse says, whatever you do, whatever you say, do those things Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you say? I mean, that's that's weighty. As soon as we leave church and we start pulling out into Devon and somebody cuts us off, there's a ripe opportunity to disobey this verse. What I say right there in that moment, does that glorify God? Is Christ preeminent in what I just said about that person that's created in God's image? Sure, they don't know how to drive. But can I live this verse? Can I put to death the things that I've been excusing for a long time? And then he gets practical again at the end of chapter 3. <laughs> These aren't the only ways. He said, whatever you do, whatever you say. But then he, uh, let's, let's ask Paul, Paul, what are your, what, what's your concern? What are you wanting us to do? He said, well, it can start in the home with better marriages. Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? He doesn't even unpack it. <laughs> One verse. No, like, 15 ways to do it. No, like... Well, if the husband's a jerk, I mean, don't worry about it. 
If Christ is supreme, I've just been drilling this home for three chapters. What's your home life like? And we, we might race to, well, we should do more devotions together. We should do, stop yelling in front of kids. Those are all great things. But it's interesting where Paul's mind goes. He goes to the nature of authority in the home. Why? Because that's how Christ runs the body. Through authority. Christ is the authority. He establishes headship. And then there's headship in the home. Well, husbands aren't off the hook. Because verse 19 is for them. Husbands Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We know from Ephesians that husbands represent Christ to the, the, the wife who represents the church. How does Christ love the church? Sacrificially? Not part-time? Not whenever he feels the energy to? Love her. She's being prickly. She doesn't understand. Love her. But what if she's not the same woman I married initially, you know? Love her. Children, is Christ preeminent in your life? Are you waiting for some other time for Christ to become preeminent, or is he preeminent now? What does he say? Children, obey your parents in everything, because this pleases the Lord. Ultimately, you're not obeying your parents. You're obeying the Lord. If you're obedient to Christ, you're going to demonstrate that obedience to Christ by respecting the human authorities that God has placed in your life. What about when my parents are crabby? What about when they're wrong? <laughs> what, about, what about when, uh, you know, any situation we could think of where we might feel excused? Obey your parents for this pleases the Lord. Obviously, if any human authority tells you to do something that Scripture clearly makes clear that that action displeases the Lord, then you can't obey the human authority and please the Lord. In that case, you obey the Lord only. Caveat complete. Okay? All right. Fathers, verse 21. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. You will be responsible to your supreme head, who is Christ, as to how you raise your children. Did you provoke them? Were you so heavy-handed that they felt discouraged? Now, obviously, there's the opposite abuse. There's the opposite abuse where we're so encouraging that it's not really encouraging, and that actually discourages them. Everything is floral. There's never any discipline. There's enough Proverbs to put that in check. But he's, oh, he's correcting on the other side. Where, yeah, yeah, discipline, yeah, Proverbs, the rod, man, the rod, you know, smash them down, put them in check. Love them. Don't provoke them. Encourage them. Don't discourage them. You have a responsibility before preeminent Christ who's supreme over you. And ultimately, that child is his. You're a steward. Take care of his stuff. So you see how wonderfully practical this is and it's really quite simple it's not easy but simple it's not that complex christ is the boss he says go you go he says stop stop and what i love about this when he tells you things like 
Can you put these to death? Put these to death. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Oh, I'm sorry. You you just should have heard my parents the way they grew me up. Oh, that's how we talk at work. I know, I know, I know. It's just a construction worker talk. Put it away. He's not asking your opinion. Oftentimes, as a parent, or even maybe if you've spent time as a school teacher or any, let's just open up to any authoritative role. Those that report to you and that are under you are going to ask you sometimes, why? Why? Why is that a rule? That wasn't a rule last year. I don't get it. That's not a rule at the company. That's not a rule in this other house. That wasn't a rule when you were a kid. Grandma told me. Right? And sometimes it's, it's, it's legit, right, to explain it. Sometimes scripture explains why. Here's why. It will not go well for you, Cain. It will not go well for you, Cain. Sin wants to jump you. It's crouching. It's waiting. It's going to take you over. It will not go well for you, Cain. That's why I want you to worship me. It's not just that I'm preeminent. It's that the best thing for you is to recognize my preeminence. It's best for you to worship me. Cain didn't listen. So sometimes there's an explanation. But sometimes there's not. And God doesn't owe it. Why? Why Why'd you design the family like this? Why'd you design it like that? Why is life like this? Why, can't, why is that an evil desire? Why is that a passion? Why is that considered an idol? Why, 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 why? Now, Paul doesn't really provide reasons as much as just the one truth that he's trying to hammer home throughout the whole book that we saw in chapter 1. Christ is before all things. Christ is preeminent. Christ is the head. And he says so. And guys, sometimes that's just got to be enough. Christ said don't do it, so don't do it. That has to be enough sometimes. We don't have to overthink everything and unpack the theology of everything all the time. Sometimes it needs to just get into our minds and into our hearts This displeases Christ. I'm not exactly sure why or how all the time, but this displeases Christ. And that's why I shouldn't say that. That's why I shouldn't do that. Do we have habits, vices that match what he's talking about in there? Anger that gets out of control? Little malicious behavior that's sneaky, it gets in there, and then, ha ha, we laugh it away, just kidding. But not really just kidding, it's in there. We have unforgiveness, bitterness that we harbor because we're just so angry at someone that starts taking over our relationships. Do we click on stuff we're not supposed to click on? Think about someone else that's not our spouse the way we're not supposed to think about them. He doesn't say, hey, give it a while. It'll go away. Put it away. Why? Why? Because Christ is preeminent and he says so. Let's pray.